The evangelists have recorded very little of St. Thomas. Of his later life, we have very little information that is based on history. It seems fairly certain that when the apostles scattered, he preached among the Parthians and in India. Upon command of a king, he was killed with lances, and for this reason, he is frequently pictured with a lance. Other pictures show him with a carpenter's square, because a legend has it that he was sent to the king of India as a builder. St. Thomas is regarded as the patron saint of India. December 21 is his date, but it is not the date of his martyrdom. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, majoring in the minors. Today we are going to park the car with St. Thomas. December 21 is the day appointed in our church here. We'll talk about that date here in a little while as well. But December 21 is appointed as the day when the church remembers and commemorates the life, mission, and ministry of St. Thomas. I was reading to you from uh, the Sermon and the Propers, a CPH book from the 1960s, authored by Lindemann, a nice little introduction to St. Thomas. Pastor, according to what we just heard there, um, we don't know a lot historically about St. Thomas, aside from the uh, uh, three or four instances where he's mentioned his Holy Scripture. No, uh, we don't. Uh, we do have a little bit of uh, historicity uh, that we can discuss in terms of Thomas's life, because the Christian church that exists in India uh, oftentimes traces itself back to St. Thomas, and that goes right along with the introduction that you read, where he preached to the Parthian Empire, uh, and then also uh, in India, uh, that being the place where he met his end. Um, and, and so, you know, when you have that sort of example, I think there is a, a, a grain of truth to that, that that's the direction he headed, so we know some of that information, and we can probably have some, um, whether it's true or not, but some good inferences about his life as a result of uh, the traditions of the churches in India uh, that descended from his preaching. But uh, again, like you say, from scriptures, we don't have a ton of information. It is interesting, uh, you know, when you think of India today, you don't normally think of a large Christian population. And yet the Christian church in India does have one of the longest histories and uh, a rich, rich heritage. Uh, I know some of the earliest missionaries from the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod were sent to India. And uh, the Lutheran Church has a deep, deep connection to several different parts and languages in India. Yeah, and, and there is a uh, rich tradition of Roman Catholicism there as well, and, and there are Christians, uh, you know, um, mainly on the uh, eastern coast of India uh, is where a lot of them are. Um, and so, for example, the fabric that uh, has made the pyramids here at Good Shepherd comes from India. Uh, in fact, the, the big Roman Catholic uh, uh, Christian center of India uh, on the east coast there, and the name of the town is It'll spring to me here in a minute, but uh, there are Christians there. We uh, we don't want to spend a lot of time with this historical background. We want to get into the Bible readings appointed for St. Thomas Apostle Day. But I do want to share on the uh, from the Manual on the Liturgy for the Lutheran Birth Book of Worship uh, just a couple of sentences on St. Thomas. Thomas called Didymus. Thomas is Aramaic for twin. 
Didymus is the Greek for twin, is referred to four times in the New Testament. The biographical information from the fourth gospel presents Thomas as slow to understand, but for all his doubt, it is Thomas who makes the confession, which is the climax of John's gospel. Legend associates Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon, and Jude, the five apostles of the East, and tells of Thomas's missionary journeys to India and his martyrdom at Madras. Pastor, uh, thoughts on uh, that uh, sentence I just read? Well, yeah, and there you have the name of the town. I couldn't think of the name of Madras. Uh, oh, sorry. And, uh, also sometimes today, I think, known as Chennai. Um, and so uh, there we have it. Uh, I think that it's a good thing, uh, that what it said, that that's the truth. And I think the, the famous use of talking about St. Thomas comes um, when and I think this is going to be our, our, our gospel reading, when Jesus appears to the uh, 12, uh, the 11, uh, after the resurrection, a week after Easter, and Thomas is there, in a sense, standing in for all of us, and that's, that's a really great thing. The uh, gospel reading for St. Thomas Day is John 20, 24 to 29, and these words should sound familiar. They are the appointed apportion of the appointed gospel reading for the second Sunday of Easter, eight days after uh, Jesus rose from the dead on that uh, uh, second Sunday, Jesus appears to the disciples a second time, and Thomas is there. The first time, Easter evening, he's not there. And so uh, all three series in the three-year series and the one-year series, this is the, uh, I believe it's the only time in the church year where everybody is reading the same gospel every Sunday in all of the different series. Now, the difference that we have here is uh, we have just the guts. The uh, gospel reading for Easter 2 has the appearance of Jesus. He breathes on them, receives the Holy Spirit. In a sense, he institutes the office of the keys. That is uh, a little bit earlier here in John 20. That's not included in our gospel reading. Also, in that gospel reading for Easter 2, there is a little bit that talks about Jesus did many other things that are not recorded uh, in the scriptures, but these are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What we have here is just that middle section from that Easter 2 gospel, which fixes our eyes very, very clearly on the interaction between Jesus and Thomas. And I think that's very, very helpful for our focus here. I have to make a confession um, because St. Thomas Day always falls right in the middle of Advent. I have never, we have never observed it here at Good Shepherd. We have, um, I've never preached on these texts. I was kind of blown away by the Old Testament reading and uh, can't wait until we can uh, observe this uh, festival in our congregation. Pastor, what have you um, observed St. Thomas Apostle Day? I, th I think I have, um, you know, I always tried to keep a, a little bit of uh, tabs on those things. I think I did one Advent season on a midweek service, but um, it's, it's been a long time ago. It is, uh, you know, some of the, uh, some of the other church bodies, uh, Christian churches, have moved St. Thomas Day off of December 21 and have moved it to the summertime because 
uh, it's really hard to give up Sundays or Wednesdays in Advent. And that may be something, you know, we're, we're in the freedom of the gospel that we have. That may be something that we want to consider with some of these uh, saints' days that we just don't get a chance to observe. We've got Wednesday services year-round here at Good Shepherd. And so uh, we would have the opportunity to do that and um, be able to rejoice in the uh, the wonderful, wonderful examples from their life, but also to be exposed from different parts of Scripture as well. Uh, enough of that intro stuff. Vicar, John 20, 24 to 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay, there you have it. Jesus, Thomas, John chapter 20, 24 to 29. Uh, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Pastor set us up here. When Jesus came, Thomas was not with them. What are we talking about? Well, uh, when Jesus was arrested, the disciples um, pretty much turned tail and fled, and uh, all were kind of hiding out. And in fact, uh, a bulk of them, 10 of them, gathered together in the same place they celebrated the Lord's Supper, and they locked the doors, and they just kind of hid out in that room. Uh, Thomas you know, I guess we could say if he was even a little smarter, he knew not to be with the rest of them. So he uh, ran away and hid individually by himself uh, apart from the whole. Uh, and so when Jesus appeared on the first Easter, he was not there with them uh, because he was out hiding on his own. And so the, the other disciples, uh, they, they find him, they tell him what happened. And uh, that's kind of where we pick up then with this particular gospel lesson. We don't really know where Thomas was, do we? The scripture doesn't no. tell us. No, and that's probably not an important thing where his location was. Uh, we just know that he was not with them. Pastor, is it um, is it fair based on that to talk about how it is not good to separate yourself from the body of believers? Was, uh, was Thomas being um, spiritually irresponsible by going off on his own if that's what happened uh you know maybe he maybe he just went to the market to buy bread or something too you know i i don't know but is there is there a lesson here for us with regard to the gathering together of the saints well um I don't think he just went out to buy bread, and we can tell that by what Thomas himself confesses in the gospel lesson, right, where he says, follow the science, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and his feet and put my hand into the hole in his side, I won't believe that he's alive. Follow the science. Um, now, 
he is separating himself from the church. Uh, he's not there with the others. He hasn't heard the word. And I think here's really the key that we can understand with the, the account of St. Thomas. You know, lots of people like to say doubting Thomas and don't doubt like he did. Um, rather, I think in Thomas we see an example of how God's word actually works to create and sustain faith. Thomas doesn't believe until he hears a sermon from Jesus. Uh, Thomas doesn't believe until he comes into contact with Christ, as we do in the Lord's Supper. And so, in, in a sense, yes, he is separated from the church and not hearing the word and not coming into contact with Christ, and that's how he's able to confess, you know, follow the science, unless I see uh, this guy alive that has these holes, I won't believe. I want to uh, want to explain a little bit more. You made a comment about uh, doubting Thomas, and uh, maybe we need to rethink that phrase. We'll uh, we'll take that up when we come back from our break. This is proclaiming the one majoring in the minors. We're looking at Saint Thomas Day, December twenty one on the church calendar. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. K-N-N-A-L-P 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Today we are looking at St. Thomas. December 21 is the official day that the church has set aside to honor and commemorate Thomas. Usually falls, uh, always falls right in the middle of Advent, and so this is one of those uh, minor festivals that often is forgotten. We uh, we have the familiar words in uh, our gospel reading, John 20, 24 to 29. Vicar, you want to read those words one more time so they're fresh in our brain? Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. All right, there we have it, John 20, 24 to 29. Pastor, at the uh, at the end of our first segment, we talked about this whole doubting Thomas kind of thing, and um, we, we have uh, Thomas who makes that uh, 
as you said, uh, follow the science or trust the science comment. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Uh, that doesn't sound like a statement of doubt to me. Um, so where does this whole doubting Thomas come from? Well, I think well-meaning pastors have tried to find a simple way to preach the text, and uh, that's where it's kind of come out of uh, this idea that, you know, Thomas is doubting, and uh, uh, even the words that he says show that he has doubt. And lots of times the sermon is, you know, it's okay that you have doubt uh, so long as you end up believing the right way. But the trouble with that is that it puts the work of salvation again on you as if you need to stop doubting and that's how you're saved. Um, and that's not the case at all, and that's never the case. In fact, the way that you come to faith is the same way Thomas did, by actually coming into contact with Christ through his word and through the sacraments. And and so Thomas, as you said, the words aren't really words of doubt, they're words of Jesus is dead and, uh, and that's that, and I was wrong, and I'm not going to believe anymore. And so it's I don't know if you say words of paganism. That's probably a step too far in the wrong direction. But um, uh, words of denial of Christ, um, he's not a Christian in the sense by his confession, at least outwardly. It is, uh, I believe it's in the King James Version where we have stop doubting and believe. Uh, that's the English translation. And uh, it's, it's not a, a clear or accurate translation of exactly what's going on, but I think that's where the whole doubting Thomas thing came from. And when we think about that term, doubt, uh, you know, there, there are some people that would say, you know, a little bit of healthy skepticism, a little bit of doubt is good for a person, good for a Christian, you know, that uh, scientific, inquisitive kind of ideal or thought process. And yet when I read Scripture, I never, ever, ever see the word doubt uh, portrayed in a positive way. And the opposite of doubt is certainty. And God wants us to be certain. He does not want us to be filled with doubt. And doubt is either unbelief or it is just one step away from unbelief. What? Am I being too harsh there, Pastor? No, I think that's the trouble is that uh, with the well-meaning pastors that call Thomas Doubting Thomas create a third distinction, kind of a gray area in between faith and between unfaith. And so if you're doubting, you sort of believe, but you're not really sure. Um, and, and there's lots of people that are in that category today because I think we've created it. But in, in the Greek and maybe just to drive home this point, uh, the thing that Jesus says is uh, me genu apistos, which uh, apistos uh, has uh, the the meaning of unbelief. And so it's very clear from our Lord's words, stop not believing uh, and instead believe. And so they're polar opposites, and there's a distinction there between belief and unbelief, and there's really no doubting gray area in between. And uh, the ESV translation, you know, we, we sometimes uh, will mock the ESV for certain deficiencies, but it is especially good right here. Do not disbelieve, but believe. John 20, verse 25. That's pretty good, isn't it? It, it is. That's, that's very faithful to the, the Greek. Okay, so Vicar, uh, Easter evening, 
Jesus appears to the disciples. He comes and says, peace be with you. Thomas is not there. They go and they tell Thomas. Thomas uh, gives this uh, basic confession of unbelief. And then eight days later, Jesus appears to his disciples again, even though the doors are locked. What's different this time? Well, the difference there is that Thomas is, Thomas is with them this time. Okay. Now, the, the scriptures don't tell us what, uh, what Thomas is thinking. The scriptures don't tell us exactly why Thomas is there. But based on what we've been talking about, uh, what, why, do you, why do you think Thomas is there, Vicar? Well, uh, there could be a variety of reasons. He could be coming back to check up on them. I mean, he'd been with them for for years and wanted to see how they were doing in the wake of the crucifixion. But also, too, uh, you know, when he, uh, he came back to, what's the word I want to use? Check up on them because they said the Lord is risen. And he obviously disbelieved them, so perhaps he was coming back to say, say have you come to your senses yet? I think I think it could be one of two things. I mean, first of all, he could just be curious, you know. You know, maybe this did actually happen, but uh, he's with them, so he doesn't miss out. If Jesus comes back, he wants to see it. If Jesus doesn't come back, he wants to go. Nah, 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 nah. nah you guys are goofy. Um, scripture doesn't tell us. All we can do is speculate, and we need to be yeah. very, very careful when we speculate. Can Pastor? I make a, a third speculation? Yeah. So I, I'd say that um, because, uh, you know, the disciples were Lutheran, uh, Thomas is there because the others have found him and have preached a sermon to him that says, we have seen the Lord. Uh, and even his words, the Spirit promises to work in that. And and I think as a result of that, he's there with them uh, in in questioning uh, at least because he's heard God's word. Yeah, uh, I think that's uh, I think that's fair, and uh, we don't know uh, for whatever reason. Now he's back in the assembly. He's back with his brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a good thing. Um, Thomas uh, is there with the disciples, and the. John, the uh, human author here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it very, very clear. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Why does John emphasize the fact that the doors were locked? What what did Jesus, uh, he uh, crawled through the window or what? Uh, No, uh, rather Jesus is God, and uh, now he's... um He's really not hiding that fact in the same sense he was during his earthly life. And so uh, Jesus is um, able to do what Jesus wants when Jesus wants, and he's able to get into the door when he wants to as well, and that's exactly what happens. Okay, so we have uh, further testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, true God and true man all at the same time, He is physically risen. He is physically alive, and yet walls, doors, uh, they cannot hold him. They cannot contain him. He is no longer in his state of humiliation, but now in his state of exaltation, fully using all the power uh, of God that dwells within him. He's fully using it and fully displaying it. 
And I wonder if there's something we can learn from that in the sense that uh, God's Word really can get in wherever it wants to, which is why we ought to keep preaching the Word all the time, even if it seems even when it seems like maybe it's fruitless or hopeless, uh, God's Word does what God's Word promises. Amen, amen, amen. And Jesus preaches this little sermon. He says, uh, peace be with you. Your sins are forgiven. Yes. And uh, note when you're in the divine service how often you hear that declaration of peace. Every time you hear that, and it's multiple times in the divine service, multiple times, God is absolving you. God is forgiving your sins. And where's the main place we say that, right? After the words of institution has been spoken, the pastor holds up uh, the bread and the wine, and he says, peace be with you. And then we get to come and receive Jesus physically in the Lord's Supper, and it really matches what we're seeing here. Same thing that happens here for Thomas. Uh, Jesus says those words, and then Thomas gets to put his hand into the wounds of our Lord, coming into physical contact with him. Jesus invites him to put his hands into the wounds. Uh, does, does Thomas do it? Uh, we, we don't have that part recorded. You know, he comes into physical contact with Jesus, and I think that's the key part. You know, we can get into the minutiae here, but I think that distracts from the main thrust of the, the Scripture. Okay, and at this point in time, I guess I would say he's probably going to do whatever Jesus tells him to do. (laughs) He makes this bold confession, my Lord and my God. Uh, Pastor, what's significant about that confession? Well, um, we have those two words there, my Lord and my God, and that's a very clear confession. It doesn't leave any room for anything else. You know, if you just said, my Lord, you could, oh, Jesus is just a nice guy, or, you know. But when he says, my God, that's a confession that Jesus is the God of all the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, and it's a result of the Holy Spirit working faith in him through the preaching of the word and the coming into physical contact of Christ. At the end, uh, Jesus blesses him. Uh, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Pastor, in the time that we have left, how is that a promise for all of us today? Well, um, it is a beatitude uh, that is directed right at the rest of the church throughout all history. Um, and, and just so we're clear, it's not like Thomas uh, has a better opportunity than we do. The same thing for Thomas is true for us. We get to hear God's Word. We get to hear sermons that bring Jesus to us. We get to come to the Lord's Supper, which brings Jesus to us. Uh, now, the difference is, is Thomas could see very clearly that it was Christ, and we uh, just trust that Word, and yet the interaction and the contact in a sense, is the same. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is you. That is me. And yet God allows us to see him, at least in part, like through a mirror, as we hear his word and eat and drink his body and blood. We need to take a break. This is uh, Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. We're looking at St. Thomas Apostle Day, December 21 on the church calendar. When we come back, we're going to look at Judges 6, 36 to 40. Don't change that now. You won't want to miss this. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.
Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, majoring in the minors, St. Thomas Apostle Day, December 21 on the church calendar. This is our uh, special program, our uh, sister program, our Proclaiming the Ones. We uh, For our regular Sundays in the church here, we have four years of services archived. TheCross957.org, you can check those out. We are replaying the uh, proclaiming the ones from two years ago, so you get a chance to hear not only Pastor Moline but Vicar Bader as uh, we work our way through the church calendar. Now, Pastor in Ogallala. Now, Pastor in Ogallala, Nebraska. Thank you. And uh, we are taking uh, this year to look at uh, several of the minor festivals, feast days, occasions, and commemorations. Today, we're parking the car at St. Thomas Apostle Day. I'm Pastor Poppy, along with me, Pastor Adam Moline. Vicar Timothy Steele II. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church right here in Lincoln, Nebraska. In our first two segments, we looked at our gospel reading, John chapter 20, 24 to 29. And now uh, now we're going to have some fun. We're going to go to the Old Testament uh, reading, Judges 6, 36 to 40. I may be wrong, but I think this is the only time Judges ever appears as an Old Testament reading um, in any feast days, festival days. It certainly isn't in the regular pericopes. So uh, we'll have some fun with this, and then we're going to let Pastor Moline wax eloquent on uh, his vast knowledge of the book of Judges. Vicar, take it away. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Okay, Gideon's fleece. Gideon's fleece. Boy, um, if you if you want to think about doubting Thomas uh, in that respect, uh, in the in the way that we talked about it in segment two, uh, this is a pretty good parallel here with regard to Gideon and, you know, really, really struggling with, uh, can I trust God or can I not trust God? Pastor, there are three, four chapters in the book of Judges that are devoted to the life and work of Gideon. Why is Gideon such a big guy, big deal in the book of Judges? Well, um, Gideon is a big deal in the book of Judges, and I think it's because in one sense, in a way, he's kind of like the first king of Israel uh, in the sense that, you know, he is comes to power, he becomes wealthy, uh, he names his one son from his... Um, uh, concubine wife, uh, the son of the king, Abimelech. Um, and, and so he's a big deal in that regard because of who he is in the scriptures. So when we take a look here at Judges chapter 
Six, where are we in the story of the life of Gideon? Is this early? Is this late? Is this in the middle? Uh, Pastor, where are we at? Well, in the uh, story of Gideon's life, this is towards the beginning of uh, Gideon's life. This is really before he does his act of uh, uh, going to war and to battle, and that involves, of course, the, um, the attack on the people living just south of Nazareth that have taken them over. Before he can do that, he has a large army and he reduces their size by going to Gideon's spring. And uh, those who lap the water uh, are held at a different standard than those who use their hands uh, uh, up to their face. And so uh, we have this division that takes place later on, but this is all before that. So it's towards the beginning. Okay, so could we, could we look at this sort of as the call of Gideon uh, to, to service for the Lord? I, I think that would be a fair way to talk about it. Um, it is kind of towards the beginning, and yet it's, it's really after the call. It's more an affirmation of the call, maybe, would be a way to talk about it. Okay. And uh, when uh, then Gideon said to God, and we're looking at Judges 6, 36, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, Save Israel from what or from who? Well, uh, this is the theme in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, we have people all the time who are coming and conquering Israel or different tribes of Israel and um, are then holding them as a uh, dependent state. And then uh, the people pray to God and God sends a deliverer. In this case, I believe it is... Uh, interestingly, the Midianites who are holding the people of Israel under their power. And so in that sense, Gideon is, um, I, I think that's interesting because Moses, who led the people of Israel out of Egypt, um, is married to a Midianite. And then the story right before this with Deborah and Barak, um, it's actually a Midianite who hammers the tent peg into the head uh, to save the people of Israel. And so it's now interesting that the Midianites who had been helping them are now the ones who are uh, oppressing them. Wasn't it a, a Midianite caravan that uh, Joseph's brothers sold Joseph into as well? Or am I thinking of something else? Uh, no, it is the Midianites. And again, that's... <laughs> They're just, everywhere, aren't they? They are. And uh, at least at some points in the uh, scriptures, it's as if they worship the same God. For example, uh, with Moses, um, his wife understands who God is and even circumcises Moses's children to keep them safe and in the care of God. Uh, and so it's just really interesting looking at the history of the Midianites. They would have been a people living on the coast of the Red Sea in what is today uh, Saudi Arabia. And so we, we think of even today then... Um, the Muslims have their headquarters, in a sense, uh, in that area and region of the world. When uh, we get into this particular text, Judges 6, 36 to 40, the, the fleece and the dew have a, uh, have a big, big part of what's going on. God is being tested by Gideon. Uh, first one way and then another way with the fleece. Vicar, you've lived in Nebraska pretty much all of your life. There are certain times of the year where there is dew over everything, or if it's cold, frost 
over everything. Um, if you don't want frost or dew over the windshield of your car or any other thing that you own, what's something you, you might do? Well, if you have the option to put the car in a garage, you'd put it in the garage. But if you can't move something like, for example, the wife's flowers in the garden, you put a tarp or something over it to keep it warm and to keep the, uh, the frost off or the dew off of whatever you're trying to keep safe. So, so I, I put a garage over my car. Yeah, see, <laughs> well, good for you. Yeah, I have too much junk in my garage to uh, get a vehicle in there. But uh, so people are familiar with this whole dew, frost, dry, wet. It is. Uh, it's a very, very common thing. And when the dew is on the ground, it's over everything. It's over everything. So, Pastor, what game is Gideon playing here with God? Well, he is, I mean, you could say it, that he's playing a game. Um, he's trying to determine what the sign, uh, he wants to be sure and certain. And I think it's more so because he's afraid. Uh, Baal worship is the, the main uh, worship that's going on in this town of Israel in which he lives. There is a Baal uh, and Asherah pole uh, in the town. In fact, part of God's command to Gideon is to cut that down. And he's so afraid that he goes and he does it in the middle of the night, in fact. Uh, he doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be caught. He's afraid of his own people in that regard. And I think that drives his desire to be 100% certain what God wants him to do because he doesn't want to get... Um, arrested or ostracized by his own people. And in a way, that kind of makes him a Christological figure, except Christ isn't afraid of that, and he allows it to happen. His own people even put him to death. And I think there's lots of Christological things with Gideon, and that's one of them. When we, when we see how God reacts, um, you know, God could have said, you know, I'm going to choose somebody else, Gideon. You're too weak. He could have said, uh, you know, you want, you want to see the dew on the fleece? I'm going to drown you in the dew. He could have reacted in a lot of ways, but it appears that God acts with Gideon in an overabundance of grace and mercy. Is that how we should look at this text, Pastor? I think so. Um, God is very lenient with Gideon, and yet when Gideon finally gets going... Uh, and finally does the things God asks, he is kind of the judge par excellence. He is able to defeat the Midianites with an army of only 300 people. Uh, he becomes uh, kind of the de facto leader of the Israelites who offer to make him king. Uh, he very piously says, no, God's our king, but then he takes all their money uh, <laughs> and acts as a king. And so it's just a really unique story in many ways, and trying to, to wrap it all around, our minds around it, is, is difficult. And yet we see so many examples of how he prefigures who Christ is, which is what I think the key is in his story. He's a, uh, uh, a type or a prefiguring of Christ, and yet in this uh, day when we're thinking about St. Thomas the Apostle, we have God being merciful to Thomas coming to him that second time after he's absent the first time. God uh, not dealing with Thomas 
with regard to his unbelief, but, but being patient and giving him a second chance. And we see, even after Gideon um, basically says, well, thanks for the sign, God, but I want another one, maybe a little more difficult one. God is gracious and merciful. And I think one of the things that we need to remember is that our gracious and merciful God continues to be gracious and merciful as he deals with poor, miserable sinners like you and me. Sinners that are full of doubt, sinners that are tempted to test the Lord, sinners that don't want to believe that God is God in the midst of all the issues and problems, the, the real issues, the real enemies that we have, we tend to think that God's maybe not quite strong enough or powerful enough to do anything, and yet God is patient with us. And that's, I think, the key in uh, uh, Gideon's account is that in the end, God really is seen with no questions as the one who does the delivering and thereby shows the mercy and the grace. And so it's really a key part of Gideon's story. And you have to take a look at it because I know we, we're almost out of time. We just have a few seconds left, but um, that's, that's a key part of it. Judges 6, 7, 8, 9, that's where you can read more about Gideon. Um, want to uh, want to just take a note. We've uh, we've been experiencing some technical difficulties in our uh, programming and recording today. I want to apologize for that. We're doing our best, and we're going to do our best to finish this program when we come back from our break. We're going to take a look at the epistle reading for St. Thomas Day, Ephesians 4, verse 7, and 11 to 16. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. This is Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Timothy Steele II. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Today we're looking at St. Thomas Apostle Day. It is December 21 in the church calendar. We are looking at the readings we did in our first segment, a little bit of an introduction to who St. Thomas is and uh, what we think he did after uh, the resurrection of Jesus, where he went and where he ministered to. In uh, our second segment, we looked in great detail at the gospel reading for St. Thomas Day, John 20, 24 to 29. In our third segment, where we uh, had a little uh, technical difficulties, and apologize in advance for that, we're working really hard to get this program finished today, we looked at our Old Testament reading, Judges 6, 36 to 40, Gideon and the Fleece. And now in our final segment, we want to look at our epistle reading, Ephesians 4, verse 7, and then verses 11 to 16. Vicar, take it away. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, Ephesians 4, verse 7, and then verses 11 to 16. The epistle reading, almost always in the one-year series, is a practical application of everything that we've heard so far. We have, in our gospel reading, we have Thomas, who, in spite of his unbelief, comes to faith, and he becomes a bold proclaimer of the truth of God. As uh, Pastor Moline taught us, Gideon, in spite of his weaknesses, the recipient of the grace and mercy of God, he goes forth and is a mighty missionary evangelist pastor, uh, most likely in the area of India. And now we have God. You, you mean Thomas. Tom, who Thomas. did I say? You said Gideon, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Thomas, Gideon, I'm all mixed up here too now. Um, but show some mercy, folks, just like God shows mercy on us. And uh, so Thomas goes to India. So we've got Gideon as a Christ figure and a bold leader in uh, the time of the judges. We've got Thomas. And now we have Paul teaching us about how the church works and how God not only uh, accomplishes salvation for us in the early chapters of Ephesians, but how God uses means to distribute the gifts to the church. We have here in Ephesians 4 a pretty straightforward text, Pastor, and yet this text is one of the most misused, abused, and I'll say it, scandalized part of Scripture um, that I can possibly imagine. Pastor, what am I talking about? We are talking about the place where it says, uh, speaking the truth in love, which uh, many people use today as a way to say, uh, don't actually speak the truth, just speak love and ignore whatever the truth is and be um, just be kind, right? And, and I think it's key that we have to remember that Paul says, speak the truth, in love, which means we should speak the truth as kindly as possible. And that's, you know, uh, occasionally Pastor Poppy comes up to me and says, you know, Pastor Moline, I mean this in Christian love and as gently as possible, but uh, you're a total moron. And uh, that's or, still or the your, truth. Or your breath smells like sardines. Right, right. There you go. <laughs> I mean, we still have to speak the truth and, and we can't just uh, let the truth go by the wayside for the sake of love. And yet when we speak the truth, we don't just come out and uh, uh, bludgeon people with it. We, we try to do it in a kind way, uh, a loving way. And really speaking the truth at all is always a loving thing because uh, it's better to live in the truth than in a lie. And so it's a complicated thing that gets misused and misapplied uh, as kind of a cover for us to... Um, not agree on true doctrine, which is what the rest of this particular uh, scripture lesson is about, upholding the truth in doctrine. And even I think the first verse is really key in understanding what the true doctrine is, that 
Grace is poured out according to Christ's measure, which is abundantly. He fills uh, our bucket with a fire hose of grace, you know, and, uh, and that's really key in understanding all the true doctrine as well. So this speaking the truth in love, Pastor, is that for the apostles, prophets, evangelism, pastors, and teachers, or is that for every Christian? Um, the speaking the truth is for every Christian. At the same time, God gives apostles, evangelists, teachers, and pastors to publicly do that within the, the church, and, and I think that that's a, a key thing to understand as well. Um, there are some churches out there where whoever feels the Spirit moving them, they get up and speak during the service. We wouldn't do that. Uh, God has created the office of the ministry, and yet at the same time, uh, as a, a layperson, you can speak the truth to your neighbor. When you're a father or a mother, you speak the truth to your child, and we do it all according to our various vocations. Uh, and we could get into that a little bit, but uh, uh, this particular text does really want us to emphasize the pastoral office. The, um, the unity that the Apostle Paul starts out with at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. One Lord, one faith, one God, one, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Ephesians 4 is all about unity. And now here he's talking about unity of doctrine, unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. He wants Christians to grow, to be mature, and as a part of that maturity is speaking the truth and love because Christ is the head and we are all one as a part of that body. And then that's the, the growing up as mature Christians is a result of the preaching of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors. That's where we want to go now because this text is not only abused with regard to speaking the truth in love. This text is abused with regard to the vocations that are listed here. There are some people that would look at this section in Ephesians chapter 4 and say, oh, everyone is a minister. There are no distinctions with regard to vocation. There are some people that would look at this section in Ephesians 4 and say, oh, the job of the pastors is to equip everyone for their own particular ministry. And there are others, and the traditional way of looking at this text, that would say that God gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers who are the ones who are doing the equipping of teaching the, the saints. It is not the saints who are equipped then to go out into ministry. Can you help sort some of that out, Pastor? Yes, I can. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, well, first off, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are all one office. It's the office of the Holy Ministry. And the uh, Office of the Holy Ministry, and we confess this very clearly it, to study the Augsburg Confession, for example, the Office of the Holy Ministry God puts in place to uh, administer the gifts, the Word and the Sacrament, to be stewards of the mysteries of the Kingdom of God. In other words, God gives pastors to preach sermons, to baptize, to do the Lord's Supper, to forgive sins, uh, those sorts of things. As a result, yes, the church is built up and Christians are able to grow to become mature Christians and to do the things we talked about at the beginning. 
but um, they are not given, uh, the, the lay person is not given, and we talked a little bit about this a minute ago, to speak the sermons, to uh, baptize normally, to perform the Lord's Supper, to do the things that are the work of the office of the ministry. There is a distinction there, and if you translate it correctly, that distinction is very clear. If you, I, I've never talked to a person who's done that crazy stuff you're talking about. So uh, that would be a misinterpretation. That's because, your, that's because your circles are very limited in confessional Lutheranism. Confessional Lutherans are very united in what this text says, and yet people want to do all kinds of wacky and crazy stuff with it. And, and when you see wacky and crazy stuff that goes outside the bounds of what the rest of Scripture teaches, what the confessions confess that the Scriptures teach, uh, even the basics of the small catechism, you ought to be very wary of that. The, uh, there was a, a book back in the uh, oh, 70s, uh, early 80s, Oscar Foyt, Everyone a Minister, and without looking at the Greek, used this passage and other passages to teach that there is no such thing as the office of the Holy Ministry, that everyone is a minister, that when you are baptized, you are baptized into ministry, and there's not one single word positive spoken with regard to the office of the Holy Ministry in that book. And some people took that almost to be like the 67th book of the Bible. If you want to do mission, if you want to do evangelism, this is the way to do it. And uh, it had a lot of traction years and years ago in the church. And sadly, there are some that still cling to that false teaching. And I think that, that that's actually a good thing to talk about then with our gospel lesson. Because we see what the average Christian can do, which is this. We have seen the Lord and invite the people to come to church, uh, to come into physical contact with the Lord through the word and through the sacrament. And so in that sense, I suppose the layperson can do evangelism, but they're not given to preach or teach or administer the sacraments. And that's a really key thing to keep in mind. And this is, this is not an office of the holy ministry versus the holy and royal priesthood. Both are gifts from God. Both are to complement each other. And this is God's gift of how he delivers the deliverance to the people of God, not to pit one against another, but to see how all of this is a part of this God-given unity that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, we need to bring our program to uh, a bit of a close. We've been looking at St. Thomas the Apostle, December 21 on the church calendar. Vicar, would you draw things to a close by praying the collect of the day? Let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, you strengthened your Apostle Thomas with firm and certain faith in the resurrection of your Son. Grant us such faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God, that we may never be found wanting in your sight. Through the same Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. For Pastor Moline and Vicar Steele, I'm Pastor Clint Poppy. Thank you for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. We'll see you again next time. God's richest blessings in Christ.